The high yield spread today at 760 basis points is the same level it was at in March of 2001. When they say don't fight the Fed, uh, it's not just some glib refrain. It's just three months ago. This market is heading into mid-February. We are priced for perfection. My first day on the job on October 87 was the first day that the stock market became a de facto objective of Federal Reserve policy. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? from markets to mortgages, from policy to politics, and everything in between. Please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. Number 14 in the 2020 Humanar series featured a man who, in my opinion, is the best economist on both Wall and Bay Street, David Rosenberg. Rosie has recently established his own firm, Rosenberg Research, after building a stellar reputation during his time at Merrill Lynch and most recently Gluskin Chef. Often referred to, mistakenly in my opinion, as a perma-bear, Rosie has made several big calls in both directions, and whenever his view changes from bullish to bearish or vice versa, it's been a tremendous heads up for me over the years that a turning point in the market was near. So please welcome my friend David Rosenberg. How are you? Good, doing well, thanks, son. I mean, uh, I, I should caveat that by saying that uh, I'm still trying to figure out uh, how it is that uh, I have cabin fever when I don't even own a cabin. So, uh, <laughs> well, listen, thank you. Just thank you, lucky stars. It's not a cabin fever on a cruise ship. That would be way worse. Um, now we've got there's so much to talk about today. I mean, the world is such a, a screwy place, and as always, you've been making better sense of it than most for me, anyway. And I want to talk to a lot about um, today and where we stand. But before I get to that, I want to I want to go back to your first day in the office because I, I remember listening to you talking about that and in, in one of your interviews. Um, you know, you, for those that don't know, your first day. Well, why don't you tell them about your first day in the office? My my first day uh, as a street economist. Yeah. The very first day, yeah, it was um, October 19th, 1987. So, you know, when you start uh, your first day as a street economist uh, at the Bank of Nova Scotia uh, on the day where the stock market plunges 23%, um, no wonder I've got this dark cloud over my head wherever <laughs> I go. It just, it just follows you. Well, that, well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because I, you know, I was I was trading then as well, and and I remember that day um, both very very clearly, and it's a complete blur because it kind of happened so fast. I, I remember the sheer terror I felt, um, but I wanted to just kind of talk to you about that and 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 understand the lessons that you you took away from that. Um, if, if I mean, you may not have even been in the business long enough to take in lessons. It may have been a beautiful surprise that you kind of that came and came and went. But I mean, for me, it's certainly coloured my entire career. Understanding that that could happen, and, I, and I'm really curious to find out what lessons you took away from that. 
Well, the lesson that I took away from it is uh, the lesson that we're still learning today, uh, which is how powerful uh, the Fed is, especially when it comes to liquidity issues, maybe not solvency issues, but when it comes to liquidity, uh, when they say don't fight the Fed, uh, it's not just some glib refrain. And so what I came out of it was, if you remember, uh, Greenspan, uh, who had just been appointed in the previous year, uh, kept on cutting interest rates into early 1988 when it became so obvious that <coughs> it was whatever bear market it was, it was over, very steep down correction. Economy was booming. Uh, I, I mean, we had uh, 5% real growth, 7% nominal growth in the fourth quarter of 1987. You would never have guessed that would be the, the quarter of the biggest stock market collapse since 1929 or the Fed pumping the system with liquidity. But the thing is that the Fed kept on going in the early 88 when it was so obvious that the recovery was rocking and rolling. We were at full employment. And what's interesting is that if you go back and you read the FOMC transcripts uh, from that time period, those FOMC meetings early 1988, you see over and over again, Greenspan talking about that we have to take out added insurance against the stock market going down right into the spring of 1988. And so that's all of a sudden when you start realizing, and that's actually when the term the Greenspan put yeah. uh, became popular in the financial market lexicon because central bankers, of course, always took the stock market into account, but they didn't have both eyeballs <laughs> on the stock market. Uh, we just replaced Paul Volcker. It was always about the economy. It was always about the economy. It was about inflation, about the labor market. And all of a sudden, the Greenspan Fed in 19, late 87, early 88, implements a new de facto target, which is the stock market. Now, we've, look, we've had bull and bear markets along the way, uh, but that was really uh, the start of the central banks making the stock market a basic tenet uh, of what they're trying to achieve. And it's just escalated ever since, including the modern day Fed. So that's what I, I took out of it, was that even for me, when we go through these bear markets or steep corrections, um, be careful about overstaying your bearish welcome because yeah. the Fed is gonna do everything it possibly can as it already is uh, to put a floor to this thing. Now how successful it's gonna be remains to be seen. Um, it might be successful at a different level as it's been in the past. Um, but that's what I take away from my first day on the job was how the stock market, my first day on the job in October 87 was the first day that the stock market became a de facto objective of Federal Reserve policy. You know, it's interesting. Um, we, we look at today and we look at what the Fed are doing. And, and you're right. I mean, that was the beginning of the Greenspan put. It was the beginning of the Fed put. That, you know, the baton was passed to Bernanke and Yellen and now Powell. Um, when you look at what you learn that day and you look at the situation we're in um, in the middle of COVID-19, do you think that this might mark the end of the success of that? Or do you think when they've talked about, you know, I've seen the word unlimited from Powell, I've seen the word irreversible from, um, from Lagarde in the same week. And those kind of hyperbolic statements tell me that either they are reaching the panic stage or the market is still going to fall for this stuff, and they, you know, they could be 
successful in some ways. How, how do you kind of rank today in terms of where they are with their policies? We know they're going to do the same thing and their likely success chances. Well, uh, again, you know, when, when you go back to those FOMC, uh, the transcripts from the meetings in 88, you get a sense that, once again, it's, all, it's basically all about the stock market. Now, that... Um, I mean, that correction, I mean, that was frightening. Anybody that was around yeah. October 1987, but it was a liquidity event. It was not a solvency event. It was not even, I would say, an economic event. The economy was booming. Uh, I'd almost liken that to what happened in the fourth quarter of 2018. I wouldn't say the economy was booming, but the Fed was tightening, draining liquidity. This was a different Fed at that point, a different Jay Powell. Uh, and then the market goes down 20% in pretty short order. You know, by the December 26 lows of 2018, it seemed like a trap door opened up. Um, but then once again, you saw the Fed's reaction function. You saw, you know, the Powell pivot. Uh, so we go from the Greenspan put to the Powell pivot. And then the Fed all of a sudden is cutting rates three times and re-embarking on QE uh, in the fall as an antidote to the blow up in the repo market. Um, but I would say that the Fed still believes in the equity wealth effect. The Fed still believes that the equity market uh, is a, um, uh, a signpost of confidence, uh, a measure of success, much like the president does. Uh, this is all really ultimately about the stock market. And, I, and I'd go back, for example, to when the Fed embarked on QE2, uh, back in 2010, uh, and QE1 was totally justifiable. I think any libertarian yeah. would say that QE1, we had a failure in the mortgage market, uh, get the economy going. Uh, the recession was already over. Uh, and after the day after QE2, Bernanke pens uh, an article in the Washington Post where he talks about what it, why is it that we want to have the equity market go up is because of the wealth effect on spending. Uh, and the wealth effect on spending was something that Greenspan made no bones about talking about through most of the 1990s uh, into the 2000s. Uh, and so we have a situation today where, you know, this is what I never quite understood is when, you know, my counterparts would say this was the most hated equity market rally of all time, you know, the previous 11 years. It's total bunk um, because you might not have seen a lot of inflows into mutual funds. There surely were inflows in equity ETFs. But households, you look at household assets, the equity share of household assets is the highest it's ever been. Hmm. Um, look what all those 401ks are stuffed with that President Trump keeps on reminding us during the bull market about those 401ks. There's just so much riding uh, in terms of uh, household assets and equities um, that the Fed believes that that is really the bedrock. And, and I think that's why they continuously, that's why all eyes, I mean, they haven't gone to the equity market yet, but everything they do in every other market, in every other asset class, whether they're saying it's for liquidity reasons uh, or for solvency reasons, is always the domino effect is back on equities because they continue to believe in the equity wealth effect on spending. And that's what they want to regenerate. I mean, it, is that real? Because I, I've read all that stuff as well. And those transcripts are a goldmine when you go back. I mean, no, no matter how far, but you can almost pick one at random and there's something in there that will just make you scratch your head. But do you think that is real? Because it, it, I struggle with that equity wealth effect. I understand the premise behind it, but I, I struggle to see in real terms uh, an obvious way you can point and go, look, there's your equity wealth effect in, in operation. Well, it's... Uh... There is something called the wealth effect. It's not just um, equities, but it's also houses. It's 
your combined value of your net worth. And look, this, uh, it was first modeled like 150 years ago mm -hmm. by a French economist named Alfred Pigou. Uh, and it was called the Pigou effect. And you can actually model this out uh, in terms of uh, the change in wealth and what that does to your behavior. Because ultimately, when you're talking about the study of economics, and you're talking about the study of the consumer, which is 70% of the economy, uh, then you're talking about what motivates consumers to save or to spend. And so when you see your stock of wealth going up uh, and you view it as permanent, uh, and remember that it was Milton Friedman uh, that wrote report after report uh, on the permanent income hypothesis. So if you believe something is permanent, it's going to have a fundamental change in your behavior. So if you believe that your stock of wealth, whatever it is, housing, art, uh, wine, uh, equities, uh, if you believe that's going up, you're going you're gonna to save less and spend more out of your current income. The question is, how big is that? I mean, over, over time, if you looked at most of the models, you know, every dollar of wealth, if it's viewed to be permanent, you know, has a three to five cent impact uh, on consumer spending over time. So it's not that big an impact. Um, so I would tend to agree with you. But is the wealth effect, I mean, you, there's, no, there's no economist that would be running an equation uh, or a regression of consumer spending and not have a wealth effect in there. You have to have it in there, but it's, I wouldn't say it's that significant, but yeah. the Fed, we've seen, look, we, we've seen how the Fed has acted. We know what we just saw uh, Jay Powell and, and we don't have to talk about what's happened this time around. We didn't have a pandemic in December of 2018. We had a big stock market correction. What caused the Fed uh, to uh, reverse course in the opening months of 2019? Was it the economy? No, it was the stock market. Yeah. So, you know, that's still the, you know, the tail that wags the dog. It's still about the stock market after all these years, after October, 1987, it's still about the stock market. So, so what does that mean for investors who, who kind of take that on board and think and says, well, if it is about the stock market, then buy the dip, is actually the right strategy, or at least until it no longer works. So the question becomes, are we close to the point where jawboning and we'll do whatever it takes and unlimited and all this sort of stuff, until that stops working, buy the dip is the right thing to do, surely? Well, I think that buying the dip is the right strategy, but the question becomes at what level? Yeah. So despite everything I was saying, the cycle is still the cycle. You've got the Fed, and then you got Mother Nature. And there are times where Mother Nature is going to win. So, you know, did you want to start buying the market, you know, in the uh, summer, say, of 1991? Sure. Uh, after a bear market recession. Uh, did you want to buy the market in, uh, say, the fall of 2002? Sure. After a 40% decline, buy the market. Um, and the Fed was easing rather aggressively. I don't think you wanted to buy the market in December of 2001, but a lot of people were buying the market right. at that point. Did you want to buy the market in March of 09? Sure. After a 60% uh, 18-month bear market, yeah, you wanted to buy the market at that point. So it's nice to go back in history and the, the beauty of 2020 hindsight and, and say, well, you know, buy the market at this particular point in time. And uh, 
that's when people tend to say, well, don't fight the Fed. But sometimes it works, sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, you know, people were saying that after TARP 1 uh, in the fall of 2008. And people were saying the same thing, don't fight the Fed. And the market repped uh, for a few months, actually, into January of 09. And then you were down 30% to the lows. Yeah. And the same thing happened in 02. And that's what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about, look, the, I, I do understand don't fight the Fed. Liquidity is so important for the market. But there's also valuations. There's also the fundamentals. Um, there's the technicals. There's so many things you have to be thinking about when you're going into the equity market. And then what I always say is that, you know, when people say that I'm some sort of radical perma bear, you know, um, I, I don't think they read my research or they no. just listen to people on television or their brother-in-law said, Oh, did you? but the thing is that you have to come up with ideas and, uh, within the equity market, um, there's always ideas. Uh, I, I don't understand at any moment of time, you know, for, for, for me, people that buy the index, they're just lazy. Yeah. Like you're buying the S&P 500. Really, is it, do you want to own all 500 stocks? Like, do you know, there's at any moment of time, there's like 200 dogs in there that you don't want to own. Yeah. So at any given moment of time, there's parts of the market I like and parts of the market I don't like, and it's no different today than it's ever been. But this, I mean, this sets us up perfectly for for where we are today because you know we've 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 had more than a dip. Um, we've had the fastest real collapse that we've seen certainly in our careers post '87. Um, and yeah, we've seen this really strong rebound. So, so you know, is this just a bear market rally as, as I would contend it is? It looks like that to me. And if it isn't, what does it take for it to achieve escape velocity? I mean, again, against the backdrop of the data, which we'll come to, it's hard to imagine, but, but is this a bear market rally? Why is it so strong? What does it take to clear? Of course it's a bear market rally. Uh, it, it, is, it is the classic Bob Farrell rule number eight uh, that there are three aspects to every bear market. There's the initial plunge, the reflexive rebound, and then the long and drawn out decline to the fundamental lows. We're in the re reflexive rebound right now. We had the mother of all reflexive rebounds uh, coming off the uh, October 1929 crash. Yeah. We had a 50% six-month rebound. Uh, you go back to, we had a couple of these. The, the message I'm sending my clients is this. Every bull market has its pullbacks. Every bull market has its pullbacks. Just as every bear market has its bear market rallies. And the bear market rallies can last for several months and they can be rather significant. Now, those are rallies that you want to rent. Those are not rallies that you want to own. Uh, they don't typically have a long shelf life. Uh, I think the issue this time around uh, is we're just in a bog of uncertainty. Record number of companies are pulling guidance. Uh, I know that there are a lot of portfolio managers out there and CIOs <laughs> that say, well, I'm just looking at this as a temporary event. The equity market is a long duration animal, so I'm going to price the market off of normalized earnings. And that's fine. There's no doubt the equity market is a long duration asset. Uh, and people say, well, look at how low interest rates are. And I say, well, interest rates are low, but that's not just a denominator as a discounting mechanism. Right. The low interest rates are telling you something about the future of economic growth and profits. You can have it both ways. But I think that what the folly is, uh, is for those people that believe we're going to have a significant recovery, because there is no significant recovery without a vaccine. In fact, I would say there's yeah. probably not going to be much of recovery at all without a vaccine. And then I'm looking at this, the permanency of 
the job, the loss to jobs and the loss to income is overwhelming. Uh, I mean, when people say that, well, look at uh, 80% of the job losses in March and April, and if you believe the, what they told the BLS, well, 80% well, they're temporary. But the 20% therefore are permanent. And yeah. that's 5 million jobs that aren't coming back. Uh, that's more than two years of job creation that probably aren't coming back. That is definitely going to have some sort of impairment to that normalized uh, earnings curve when people say, well, this is why I'm buying equities. I'm really just viewing this as a temporary blip on a longer-term uptrend. Well, that longer-term uptrend, I think, is going to be more impaired than people believe. In fact, we did some work on this and published it last week, and we showed that on a normalized basis, the earning, the PE multiple is actually 20 on the nose, which makes it the top 10% of extreme valuations on a normalized basis. Because right. you know how crazy it is on 12-month trailing, 12-month forward, but even on normalized, it's a top 10%. So I'd say, look, on valuations, as best I could see, the market writ large is just is just too pricey for my taste. Um, and I think it's become quite a speculative market in many respects. Uh, I mean, the, in, this, in this respect, I think that, and this is more even than what happened after 1987, uh, is so much faith. And I think it, it could be blind faith. But the question I get over and over again is this, is the Fed, is the Fed going to buy equities? Yeah. It's as if everybody wants to get ahead of the most deep-pocketed entity there is out there. And so I think that, you know, when I get those questions, I never got those questions before, but you see what the Fed did on that day just before Good Friday with that whole announcement of all that infiltration into the credit markets. Uh, but once you start going into high yield, people understand, going into high yield, uh, high yield in the capital structure resides right next to the equity market. Yep. So that's what I mean. I mean, the Fed could say, well, you know, we're trying to uh, improve the liquidity conditions uh, in the marketplace. And of course, there was that time period uh, back in March uh, when everything lost liquidity, including treasuries. But by the time Good Friday rolled around, things started to become unclogged. And if you remember, the Fed came in, very interesting, the Fed came in that Thursday, which was the very first horrible jobless claims Day. Yeah. Right at 8.30 when the claims numbers came out, it was the first uh, 6 million handle that we had. The Fed came out with its announcement. But when you but, but see the next, the thing people start to ask is, well, if they're going to go into high yield, are equities next? And of course, you've got the situation with Powell on 60 Minutes saying, well, you know, we have more to do. Well, after you've gone into the junk bond market, what, what more is there to do? Now, whether that works or not, whether the Fed coming in to buy equities you know, I don't know, the, the Bank of Japan, uh, you know, has been buying equities, you know, since, uh, you know, for the past seven years. And the Nikkei is still 50% lower today than it was at its prior peak. So, but this is, again, where you get into the stock market. Uh, a lot of this is psychology uh, and perception. Um, but I would say that uh, I think you're 100% right. This is actually a reflexive rebound. Uh, you're taking a look, for example, at the Commitment of Traders report. And I'm looking at the data, and I could see very clearly that this has been a short covering rally. I mean, the, the gross number of shorts uh, on the uh, CME, on the S&P 500, and the futures and options pits of past month, those shorts have come down 10%. Yeah. Because we know that, like, who, where, what are the flows? Who's doing the buying? We know the general public. We're looking at the flows, ETFs, mutual funds. The general public is not buying equities. They're redeeming. We know from the 
Make America Merrill Lynch, my alma mater, uh, from their latest survey, institutions aren't buying equities. Uh, and so who's doing the equity buying here? Well, you know, maybe it's algo trading, uh, maybe it's momentum-based trading, but a lot of this has been short covering. Uh, and so I'm a believer that, um, that the market's got more legs ahead of it. I'm, if I believe that, I'd be chasing it right now, but I would advise actually against chasing it. I think that when you're looking at this holistically, let's say, you know, everybody, we've got to look past the tip of our nose and the forest past the trees. It's just three months ago. This market is heading into mid-February. We are priced for perfection. Yep. Then we have the vertical down, and all of a sudden we're priced for a destabilizing deflationary depression because of the lockdowns and the COVID. And, and then we have the policy response. So we had the initial surge. We weren't priced for perfection. Then we're priced for a depression. Well, maybe it won't be a depression. And now we're priced for the policy response. But I would say that looking at where the valuations are right now, the market as a whole is not priced for a very painfully long and weak recovery phase. That is what is not priced in. And that's where I think the vulnerability is going to be with or without the Fed. So, so how, do you, how do you handicap this? Because obviously you've made a career out of looking at the data, interpreting it, and, and making forward calls. And you, know, you look at this data, this must be the clearest data picture you've ever had in your entire career, right? And yet the obvious uh, conclusions to draw from that data seem to be kind of confusing because of this massive policy reaction by the because of the the overhang of we're going to buy um, high yield because they didn't even buy any of that in the market rally. They only just started buying it, I think, in the last week or so. Um, so how do you go about separating a clearly obvious depressionary environment in terms of unemployment um, and, and kind of welding that with the fact that the equity markets could go higher from here? Because you, you, as you said, you've got to make calls for your clients. And the one question they all want to know is when, right? Well, I, I can't. Well, I, I'm only equipped really to make calls on fundamentally based markets uh, because I think that those are the more durable ones. Uh, this is really, if you want to call it a new bull market, I'm, I'm definitely not calling it a new bull market, but this is really a castle built on sand. So uh, I really don't want to chase it. doesn't mean that there's not parts of it uh, that I don't like and, and we can get into that. Uh, but we have to understand that what the Fed has already done, and you're quite right. I mean, they laid the, the gauntlet down, and of course, the markets front run it, and uh, the Fed just started with their activity. And you could argue that a lot of that is already priced in. But you see, once the Fed starts getting into this game of, uh, uh, of going into uh, uh, probing the, shall we say, the outer limits of the corporate capital structure, we're into a new game here. So if you're comfortable with the fact that the Fed has taken price discovery out of the marketplace, if that makes you comfortable, go, right. go ahead go ahead and invest in the stock market. If, if, if you think that um, rewarding in the credit, I mean, really what they did was they bailed out credit hedge funds yep. uh, that uh, obviously were poor risk managers. Um, so the Fed is there basically providing a backstop for the poor underwriting of risk. Well, you know, if that's, you know, that, that's what you like to invest in. So basically, I'd say it's become a bit of a casino. Um, I want to invest in parts of the market that I understand. Uh, and I'm recommending that people do that. Um, but the market as a whole, uh, 
it's got lots of question marks in front of it. Uh, and I want to invest around things that I have a certain level of, of certainty. Uh, the San Fran Fed, I, I would argue the San Fran Fed, out, out of all the district banks at the Fed, they, they, they do the most phenomenal research. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you saw this two months ago, uh, they published a report on the history of pandemics. Uh, yeah, I didn't see 15 it. 15 of them uh, over the past 700 years. Uh, and uh, they drew the conclusion, and this is what happens on a secular basis. Uh, savings rates go up, heightened precautionary savings go up, investment demand goes down, and what falls out of that is a semi-permanent decline, and we're talking about over 10 years, uh, in the natural rate of interest, the neutral rate. On average, it goes down to 150 basis points. 150 basis points, uh, but you don't usually go into something like this when you're at basically zero. a frat, you're above, barely above zero as yeah. it is. So the people that talk about, you know, negative interest rates, maybe we'll get there without the help of the central banks. Um, you know, like, you know, like we saw today uh, in the UK. Yeah. Um, and, um, but the point I'm making is that we're in for a long period of time here where interest rates are going to remain fundamentally low. And I'll tell you right now, if they don't remain low, the Fed will make sure they stay low because they even talked today in the FOMC minutes uh, about going back to, uh, well, its own version of a yield control strategy yeah. of capping rates. Well, you know, that's all I need to know. If I want to be in the equity market, what do I want to do with that information? Well, I would say that, you know, the, the REITs have really cheapened up a lot. And I'm not talking about the office REITs. That could be dead money. But residential REITs, apartment REITs, it seems to me uh, that uh, the cap rates are going to remain lower for longer for an extended period of time. Uh, you know, utilities, anything that is correlated with low interest rates. Um, I would say telecom services with financial depth. That's fine. Uh, financials, though, forget yeah. it. This is a detonating environment for them. Um, and then uh, there's other areas of the market that have no correlation with interest rates, but you can just formulate a, a portfolio in the equity market just based on the fact that rates are going to remain at or close to zero for a long period of time. Um, and of course, what's going to happen at some point is that we're going to get cost push inflation and cost push inflation will come because we're going to have a sclerotic supply curve demand at some point will stabilize and people don't realize if you have a three to five year view, inflation is going to come back. People don't realize in 1934, 35, 36, we went from deflation, inflation hit 5% in the mid 1930s. Yeah. Of course, then the fed tightened policy 37, 38, quite mistakenly with the benefit of hindsight once again. But what does that tell me? It tells me that real interest rates are going to go deeper and deeper in a negative territory. So as much as ever a no-brainer in this business, gold is a no-brainer. Yeah. Precious metals in general are going to benefit from an, a prolonged environment where real interest rates, and that's the key correlation with gold. So, um, you know, there you have it. There's different things that, uh, that you can do, um, you know, based on what's certain. What is certain out of this? What is certain out of this? Uh, is that interest rates are going to remain lower for longer. When I say lower, I'm talking about, you know, sub one, zero or negative yeah. for an extended period of time. Well, we, you know, we've seen this in Europe. We've seen it in Japan. So we've got plenty of kind of guides as to what might happen. And the one place you touched on it there about a detonating um, environment for the financials. Talk a little bit about, about the U.S. banking sector because you know you look across at Europe and it's a, a disaster. You look at Japan; it's been the entire banking sector has been moribund for two decades. You could argue. What do you see ahead for the U.S. financial sector? 
Well, look, the um, everybody will tell you that the banks are in fine shape. And, and I would say certainly relative to the last cycle, they were regulated and recapitalized yeah. into better shape. And so uh, I'm not overly worried about the banks from a capital standpoint. Uh, I'm not overly worried necessarily about impairment of book value. I just don't know where their earnings are going to come from. How are going to make money, yeah. And, well, I guess, I guess you know, if I had to put together a strategy for somebody who has to be invested in the financials uh, or in the banks, I'd say, well, you know, there's, there's no doubt we're going to go through a huge M&A cycle. There's going to be a lot more consolidation in many industries, and we're seeing it already. So if you have a strong investment bank team and strong uh, orientation towards M&A, you'll, you'll be better off than, uh, than banks that are, um, you know, that are deposit-based. Uh, and that rely a lot on their net interest margins. Because um, I could tell you that for the overall sector as a whole, you've got to be extremely selective. The overall banking sector as a whole, you're talking about years of zero rates yeah. with a flat yield curve. That is not good news uh, for the banks. That is definitely one area that uh, I would be avoiding. There's other parts. If I'm going to be buying uh, something with, say, a dividend characteristic, uh, I'd rather be in the utilities yeah. uh, than it'd be in the banks. And the problem, once again, I said that, you know, in terms of capital impairment, uh, there will be loan loss. There will be more loan loss reserves uh, that'll have to be applied uh, against earnings. And again, the banks are going to be caught up in a period of heightened earnings uncertainty because their clients have heightened earnings uncertainty. And it's not even a case that the bank's balance sheets aren't in good shape. It's that their customers' balance sheets aren't in good right. shape. Right. And uh, yeah, and look, you're, you're seeing that already. You've seen, um, I mean, we've had a nice little pop this week. It's really a, a speck of dust on the screens, but look, look at what the bank stocks have been doing lately. Uh, even the utilities, uh, which, I, which I do like, by the way, but there's information in the sector behavior in the stock market. You're seeing not just the office REITs, but you're seeing the other REITs have rolled over in the past, say, six weeks. Utilities are rolled over. Um, the, the banks are, were down like 40%. Uh, that's the segment of the stock market that I call, uh, you know, the, the, the missed payment right. or the, the delinquency sectors, where that's telling you something about that there's more financial stress than meets the eye. And that's what I'm trying to say here. It's very interesting that despite all the king's horses and all the king's men, and it's true that the Fed hasn't done anything yet or they just started to. But they laid out their cards uh, over a month ago. So everybody knows what they're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And yes, um, high yield spreads have come in. High yield spreads came in from their worst levels. But they're still today around 760 basis points. Uh, before the crisis, when you want to measure, say, uh, when the lockdowns really started, uh, the high yield spread was more like 500 basis points. It's still about 260 basis points wider. Um, and I find that interesting is, you know, the NASDAQ and NASDAQ 100 <laughs> are now up for the year. Yeah. Yield, because, you know, you know, we both know, Grant, we both know that, you know, when, when, when they say uh, that, um, you know, that the bond market gets it right. Um, when they say that, they're really talking about the high yield market. Mm -hmm. Because the people, you know, I've been doing, I've been in this business 35 years and I came to appreciate the portfolio managers that run a high yield book. They have to know the balance sheet. 
but they also have to know the income statement because uh, there's no other part of the bond market uh, that is so correlated with the stock market. Now, the high yield spread today at 760 basis points is the same level it was at in March of 2001, yeah. which was the first month of a 10-month recession that everybody thought was going to be over quickly. And then we saw a lot of players taken down for the count. It's a great leading indicator. Uh, the current high yield spread is the same level it was in December of 2007. And that presaged an 18-month recession. Yeah. Everybody just thought, I remember the bright lights were saying it was still a soft landing all the way through till the time that leaves. Goldilocks, yeah, Goldilocks, yeah. But I'm just saying that like, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of information there. I mean, and here you've had all the king's horses and all the king's men. I mean, I mean, you keep on saying, well, what can the Fed do for an encore? And, you know, <laughs> I was there telling people, I guess erroneously months ago, you know, when we go into the next recession, the Fed's out of bullets. I had a table up there showing that right. we got rates 500 basis points. We're like at 250. Uh, but, you know, but they had, they, you see, they, they needed, but the, you see, they needed to have those uh, emergency powers granted to them, you know, by the Congress and Treasury. And of course, everybody's playing ball right now. And this comes down, of course, into the future about central bank, about central bank uh, independence. Independence, yeah. Everything yeah. leads me down the road of, of whatever your comfort level is, whatever, you know, some people it's higher than others. But you should have gold, physical gold, gold miners um, as part of your portfolio. The central bank independence is a big question mark. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's sorry. Sorry, interrupt. It, it, it's interesting because the, you know the, the 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 whole gold thing. People have been seemingly talking about it for a long time, and I think most of the people who've been talking about it were talking about this eventuality. Ultimately, that's that's what they were looking at happening. It was kind of they jumped way too fast down the road to here, and it is this unlimited money printing, this unlimited ammunition being thrown at the thing, currencies being destroyed, and and yeah, to your point, gold is. Is the perfect antidote to that. I mean, to have in your portfolio some kind of, of hedge against that because it's it's coming whether we like it or not. Look, it's a hedge against. I said a hedge against um, negative interest rates, real or nominal. What else would you rather own? Right. Um, there's a risk that they'll go to negative interest rates. They're going to put a tax on money. What do you want to own? Well, you could say, well, I'll just continue to buy the equity market. But at some point, the valuations will just become too stupid. Um, you know, gold is basically uh, measured against fiat currency. It's measured against the production of currency. Uh, the thing about gold, despite the fact it's a nice, shiny, malleable metal that's been around for millions of years, its, it's shape doesn't change. What makes gold special is only this. It's reliable and constant production function. Now, on the demand yeah. side, yes, we don't know how bad recessions will be in India and what the dowry season is going to look like, or when oil prices are depressed, will the Russian central bank be compelled to sell their bullion to help fund their external debt service requirements? That's fine. The demand side, but the supply function of gold is stable in an unstable world. And in a world now where the production of money is skyrocketing. Yeah. And uh, people say, well, how come gold's on the, and I'm, you know, how come, you know, gold should be surging. Gold should be surging. I'm saying, look, it, you know, if it surges too much, I gotta, I gotta cut bait. You know, I mean, at some point it's going to look stupid too. I'm happy that the gold chart doesn't look stupid yet. I'm glad that actually it's, 
everything ended up hitting new lows or new highs. Bond yields a cycle hit new lows. Stock market hit new highs. Yeah. Well, it didn't hit a new high <laughs> was gold. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, but I would say that, you see, that's exactly the key to investing. There's speculating, there's trading, and then there's real investing. And real investing is basically the tortoise winning the race. And so I like the fact that gold is sort of moving up in fits and starts. Nobody, nobody has a clue as to what gold or even long treasuries. I mean, my strategy has really been going outside the slices of the stock market that I like and the rest that I would avoid. The bond bullion barbell, because I love alliterations, has been great year to date. It's been great over the past 12 months. Uh, and I would still say that that trade is, uh, is going to have some value going forward as well. Well, let me get, I want to get into some questions because I've got a ton of questions for you here. Um, and I've had a bunch of them. I'll try and wrap them into one as I, as I tend to try and do. And that's just Canada. Uh, people are asking about your views on the Canadian dollar, about the Bank of Canada, about the Canadian housing market. So perhaps you could kind of give us an overall uh, summation of where you see Canada along those lines. Well, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm actually amazed and I guess amused that the Canadian dollar uh, has been able to hang in as 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 well as it has. Uh, you know, call it roughly what the the one forty level, uh, but I don't think it's fully priced for what's coming down the pike. Firstly, uh, Canada went into the situation with its economy in much worse shape than it was in the states for a variety of reasons. Um, no capital deepening, no productivity growth. Uh, the story in Canada, really the only story in Canada, was immigration. Well, without the immigration, we would have been in recession the past year. Real, real per capita GDP in Canada was actually declining going into this crisis. So you, you can mask over a lot of problems by importing uh, a lot of people uh, into the country, which we did. And then we got to think about the future. What does immigration look like in a world that uh, is going to be smaller in many respects? Uh, Canada is not just reliant on immigration inflows. And we don't know what that's going to look like, right? Uh, and a country that's very reliant on cross-border investment and trade flows. And we know that we're going to go from a world of globalized supply chains to local supply chains. I'm not so sure that that's going to be a benefit uh, to Canada, uh, being a small open economy. On top of that, look at the balance sheets. The, ba the, the balance sheet in the Canadian household sector, uh, the debt ratios heading into this crisis were higher than they were in the U.S. back in 06 and 07. Uh, and actually, despite the fact that I was pounding my fist on the table over U.S. corporate debt, it was the biggest debt for equity swap of all time. Right. Uh, it was even bigger in Canada. Uh, the debt ratios in the private sector uh, were larger in Canada than in the U.S. And of course, the U.S. did have a housing recovery, but the bubbles never resurface in the same place. This wasn't a housing bubble in the United States this time. There's a housing bubble in Canada and a mortgage bubble in Canada. And what's going to happen in Canada that's going to be, I think, make the recovery, if there is a recovery, that much more uh, debatable is house prices here are going to decline. And they could decline between 10 and 20%. Yeah. And I'm not so sure that's going to happen in the States because housing was not nearly this time around as overvalued. So not only do we have this more unstable stock market, uh, I mean, the volatility is really the big story here around the world. It's the, and the volatility works in both directions, but also we know what lower home prices do uh, to uh, the capital base of financial institutions, but we also know what it does to consumer confidence. 
So I'll tell you the truth. Um, you know, uh, unless something dramatic happens to the global economy, unless China has another rabbit to pull out of the hat that causes a new bull market in commodities, and we have a Chinese-led expansion globally, um, I think Canada is going to be in some pretty pretty rough shape here. Uh, so that's the story for Canada. It's a uh, it's a it's I, I think I think that pretty well all of the check marks are, are in the minus column. Yeah. Uh, the plus column would just be a whole lot of assumptions, uh, and that's basically about it. But I think the outlook for Canada, uh, out of all the, say, the G7 countries, is probably uh, the riskiest one. Uh, well, you can add in the plus, uh, plus column, the people are very nice. I've been there many times. They're very, very nice people. Um, what about Europe? Um, present company included, of course. Uh, present company highlighted. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what about Europe? What do you think um, the, the, the stresses that are being put on the European project, do you think that uh, they're strong enough to, to do the kind of damage that people have been predicting for a while, or do you think Europe has a chance of hanging in there? Well, I think that... Uh, a lot is probably going to depend on the success uh, that Germany and France will have in terms of trying to convince their northern neighbors uh, out of the blue. Uh, and encouragingly, I suppose, if you're interested in stability, yeah. um, you know, for this uh, for this common uh, bond, which, of course, is really aimed at helping out the uh, uh, the poor cousins to the south. Uh, look, the um, the canary in the coal mine is Italy. Yeah, uh, Italy and Italy and Italy's zombie banks. That's my biggest worry. The zombie banks in Italy. Uh, and if anything happens in terms of uh, insolvency there, um, it'll quickly move to Spain and uh, and that'll be that. I mean, we t- we'll be talking about the uh, maybe the unthinkable or maybe it's we've always been thinking about it since uh, yeah, since 1999. <laughs> but but it's a um, but I'd say that uh, you know Europe is um, I think Europe Europe is going to get uh, hit harder I think than the U.S. I think that the, the only country that will probably benefit from uh, the reduced globalization um, and the localization of supply chains I think the U.S. comes out ahead. Uh, I think that Europe. Uh, generally is uh, much more export dependent than the U.S. is. Uh, and I think that uh, we also have to talk about what happens with China and everybody's relationship with China. Uh, and the German trade with China is extremely strong and uh, could be at risk. I, so I would say that, uh, you know, if we're talking about the smartest kid at summer school, it's probably the U.S. Uh, and I'm not bullish on the U.S., but I'd say relative to Europe, and of course, you know, is this going to be the best time in the world to go through Brexit with everything else that's going on right now? Um, there's just way too much uncertainty, but I, I, I come at it with, with this, that I said before that um, the U.S. banking system is in good shape. It doesn't mean that I want to own their stock, okay? Yeah. Uh, the European banking system, uh, you know, all for one and one for all. And uh, what I mean here is that everything is priced off the Italian banks, which are truly zombie banks after all these years and really susceptible to any ongoing recession beyond what we're seeing this quarter. Yeah, it's funny, you, 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 mentioned, um, you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned China there. Um, you mentioned this all for one, one for all. And you also mentioned an infl- China-led inflationary uh, push. Do you, do you think it's possible to get an inflationary 
push a commodity cycle upturn without China, i.e. just uh, inflation driven, pure pure money printing could could start that cycle off? Or do we need the economic activity to, to come back? Because it's, it strikes me, we've seen the China numbers, I mean, an extraordinary V bounce back to where they back to where they were before the pandemic, which I mean, you know, what do you do? It's China, you just throw your hands up. But when you look at those figures, do you see anything that suggests anything other than inflation uh, could be the only thing that will drive commodities higher? Well, look, let's uh, let's first just take a look at this Chinese situation. Um, looks like they've reopened more than 80% of their economy. Uh, industrial production, miraculously, is now up roughly 3% year over year. Yeah. But retail sales are down more than 7% year on year. So we're seeing a gap here between the production side of the economy and the demand side of the economy, and that's just not sustainable. And I think you're going to see it in the U.S. as well. Uh, more states reopening, California, three-quarters of California's reopening. Everybody's excited about the reopening. Let's see what the spending looks like. Uh, not many restaurants are going to survive, even if they have outdoor dining with 50% capacity, uh, unless they dramatically cut expenses, but cutting expenses is somebody else's revenue. It's a zero sum game. So in the Chinese situation, um, I think actually that uh, they're not going to have much of a recovery at all, even if they're past the eye of the storm. And I think that in the States, we're about to get past the eye of the storm, but there's not going to be much of a recovery because there's no recovery without demand because there's no recovery without confidence. And the confidence this time around can only come with a vaccine. It's a different sort of a cycle, health, turning into the economy, turning into financial. And there's something I might want to say about that afterwards. But back to the China situation. No, it's, you know, China consumes more than half of the world's resources. So uh, unless we were to get um, something dramatic on the supply side, like we did with oil, but you see oil does have yeah. a cartel. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Saudis were principally responsible for the trap door opening up. And then Next thing you know, the Saudis are dramatically cutting production, and so is OPEC, and so are the U.S. shale guys. Um, but I'd say that this has not been a demand-driven oil price rebound. It's been all on the back of supply. Uh, to get a real commodity inflation, you need demand. You need demand. Uh, you're not going to get the same discipline in every single commodity like you do with oil. Uh, and oil also has its particular political yeah. characteristics. So, you know, right after Donald Trump phones MDS a few weeks later, well, they're sitting at the table discussing production cuts. Well, I don't think you're going to be seeing that necessarily with copper and nickel and lead and tin and aluminum, but you need, so you need China because uh, China consumes half the world's uh, resources. And, um, and I just don't think we're going to see that sort of recovery. So I, I'm not necessarily saying even that the inflation has to come from commodities. In fact, everybody always thinks that the inflation has to come from commodities. We are gonna get inflation, but it's not gonna be commodity-led inflation. It doesn't have to be commodity-led inflation. Don't forget that most of the world today is services anyways. Uh, it doesn't have to be commodities. It's gonna happen because when you're doing an inflation forecast, you need two curves. You need demand and you need supply. And the initial impact here is we saw, look, we've had two back-to-back -back negative prints on core CPI in the United States, core PPI down two of the past three months. Uh, we just got a negative reading in Canada today on consumer prices. The initial detonation is to demand relative to supply. So we're in a deflationary outcome and it's going to be, going to be that way probably for a year. Yeah. 
But at some point, demand stabilizes at a lower level, but you still have to keep the supply curve. You can't forecast prices, and inflation is the direction of the price level. You need yeah. two curves, not one. Well, the supply curve globally is going to become increasingly uh, – inelastic, much more sclerotic. We're going to come out of this with much weaker productivity, more government regulation. Uh, think about what uh, localization of supply chains is going to mean higher costs. Having more inventory on hand is going to mean higher costs. Uh, so I think the world we're going to have beyond the next three to five years is going to be a stagflationary world. Again, it just comes down to that gold again, or real assets in general. Yeah. We're going to do much better than financial assets in that environment. But that's where the inflation is going to come from. It's going to come from these two very powerful global curves, aggregate demand and aggregate supply. Uh, but commodities, I don't think are going to necessarily have to feature into that. I mean, companies uh, are going to have a much higher cost structure. Uh, think of the airlines having to fly yeah. with 30% less capacity, restaurants with 50% less capacity, movie theaters, for example, 50% less capacity. How will these companies stay in business if they don't raise prices? Now they're going to have to take some of it on the margins, which is what I said before. That's why I can't believe that the the, the normalized earnings curve isn't yeah. from this, but part of this will show through in prices uh, as well. And that's why if you're looking at out of the money longer term, inflation hedges. Uh, they're pretty cheap right now and probably worth a look. Uh, you, you've mentioned confidence two or three times. Um, you know, and this is something I'm, I'm watching the clock. So I know, you, I know you've got to go at, at the top of the hour, but um, you've posted some great charts, University of Michigan at, at, at crazy levels. You spoke there about confidence. What do you think, what are you looking for um, as the first sign of this cracking? Is it confidence that needs to go first? I think that if you're going to ask me what are the what are the really key variables I'm looking at, like stuff that you're saying that historians will write about, these are the, the critical data points. The savings rate, yeah. the savings rate. And, you know, we had a big jump from, say, 8% to 13%. Now, the people that are bullish on the economy will tell you that, uh, that though there's dry powder, dry powder for the consumer. Yeah. There's not dry powder for the consumer. If people have lingering job uncertainty, even the ones that have a job will have a job uncertainty. They will be uncertain over their future income. And that's the things that I found in the University of Michigan is all the uncertainty over the future of jobs and income. The savings rate is not coming down. The savings rate is going up. And that's what I'm paying attention to. Because even as the economy reopens, if the savings rate continues to go up, that's going to tell you something very behavioral. That's why I was calling this, the, I was, the, my term was the Great Repression. Uh, but it is, it is a form of a depression because in a classic business cycle recession, you know, you, after recession ends, classic business cycle recession, the 10 that we came to understand and know, not necessarily love, in the post-World War II period, we weren't talking about the recession a year later. In a depression, may, is different because a depression invokes a secular change in behavior. And there is nothing out of the national accounts that is more behavioral than the savings rate. The decision as to what do I do with every incremental dollar I'm earning, am I saving more? Or spending more. So that's very important. Uh, and I'd also say that um, the labor force participation rate yeah. is very important from, from the supply side, uh, from the sense of permanency. I mean, that's the one thing people didn't talk about was that the participation rate in April went down to a sole level since 1972. There was something like 3.6 million people, 3.6 million people went from employed in April straight out of the labor force. Yeah. They didn't even go to the ranks of the unemployed. 
So I, I, I'm looking at signs as well as to, because I'm looking actually past the eye of the storm, and I'm looking actually at what does the recovery look like, because we're going to get a recovery. But what does it look like? How long will it take to fill this hole? Savings rate is very important. Uh, the participation rate, in my opinion, is very important. I'd say productivity. Productivity mm -hmm. is going to be very important um, because we have to also monitor the, the supply side. Uh, so those are the those are the, the variables. Of course, productivity uh, relates to capital, and uh, participation rate relates to labor, and then you got the savings rate relates to consumption. So you've really got the whole gamut there of of how to anticipate the secular changes in the economy. That's where I think the stock market. If you're telling me the stock market is rallying because it's got a vision of a strong recovery, not even a V-shaped recovery, but even something that's not V-shaped. I'd say we're going to have a very disappointing, very disappointing recovery. Uh, and maybe the Fed will just come in and continue to plug the system with liquidity because of that. And maybe the multiples will just continue to skyrocket. I'll still just sit back and look at it as an observer because uh, I don't want to participate in, in a Sobby's auction <laughs> where <laughs> everybody's outbidding each other for that latest money. And then they're saying, no, 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 no. It's way, way too pricey for what you're getting. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that's where I come out of it from. But I'd say, I'd say behaviorally, the savings rate is going to be very important for me as to whether or not I'm right or wrong. Look, if the savings rate in the fourth quarter is down to 6%, I'll say, okay, yeah. time to move on. I got to change my call. Uh, but that's a very important marker for me. And that's the thing about in this business of forecasting, you have to be disciplined. You can't be stubborn. Uh, but I think the savings rate and, 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 and the beauty of this is I've got history on my side. I've got the San Fran Fed report on the history, the, the millennial history of pandemics and the savings rate goes up for years. And that's why the natural rate of interest goes down. And that's yeah, how you, well, yeah, you, you strategy out of that. If you look at that, that chart, the savings rate after the Great Depression, same thing. I mean, it's skyrocketed. Okay, you had World War II coming along, but it, but it skyrocketed and it, and it trended up for two decades. So I think you're absolutely right. Look, we've, we've run out of time right on the money, 2.59 or 3.59 where you are, David. I know, I know you have to go at four. Thank you so much for taking this out. I, 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 I can't thank you enough. It's always a pleasure to get your thoughts and, and spend time with you. So hopefully everybody enjoyed this as much as I did. It was, it was great as always. Well, I, I hope our paths will, uh, will cross before long. Yeah. I don't and, know. I, I, I mean, I'm afraid, though, that by the time that, that time rolls around, the, the savings rate will be coming back. Down again. <laughs> that's right. We won't be able to afford to see Five years from now. Yeah, we'll see. David, thanks again, and, and hopefully you. I'll see you again soon. Great. Uh, folks, thanks for listening. Again, just to remind you, um, David's very kindly offered everybody a one-month trial of uh, Rosenberg Research. And as I said at the top of the show, I, I cannot thank you. I cannot implore you enough to take him up on that. Uh, Rosenberg Research forward slash clients forward slash register. Um, take him up on it, even if it's something you, you really don't think you'll ultimately end up subscribing to. To have a free month of David Rosenberg is worth its weight in gold. 